the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is indeed Elna Schutz and this is the one hour of the week where it gets a little bit nerdy on Vow FM and of course on podcast. We look at some science around a news story and just generally for your life. Today on the show... This song is irritating above anything else, but it turns out it's also true. We do live in a plastic world. The material that you and I know as plastic is actually only around 60 or 70 years old. I was surprised to find out, but as you know, it's all over the place and nearly every single piece of plastic ever created is still around somewhere probably in a landfill or an ocean and in total that's about 8,3 billion tons of plastic that's as heavy as 25,000 empire state buildings or 1 billion elephants and of all of that plastic Drink, spo- drink bottles, rather, are the most common type of plastic waste. Globally, in 2006, bottles were sold at the rate of a million bottles per minute in the world. And, of course, a lot of that was created by the company Coca-Cola. So there's a good reason why people are concerned by the results of a recent research study that are making the headlines. This study found that a Coca-Cola branded water called Dasani was contaminated by microplastics. The company has actually admitted to this, but it's not just them. Of the over 250 bottles tested in this study by Orb and State University of New York, only 17 bottles of water from 11 brands and 9 different countries did not have microplastics, so it's a pretty small number. Coca-Cola is trying to conduct their own study about this, but it's clearly a problem across across the board. And South Africa wasn't one of the countries tested specifically, but I think it's safe to say that we should also be concerned. In fact, microplastics have also been found in good, normal, ordinary tap water in various countries so it is difficult to avoid and very widespread and of course you are thinking further and thinking wait if it's in the water what's happening to my body if I am ingesting these plastics every day what are they doing to us later in the show today that is our main story and we will find out from some very clever people exactly what these microplastics do to our body and what is happening in terms of guidelines and regulations? Then it's unscience in our show, where today we find out how, get this, the mucus from a worm could be killing your cockroaches in future. It sort of sounds like a terrible like a terrible story all around. But if you like to be grossed out a little bit, this is one for you. And then later we look at the scientists behind the science, as always, with Professor Yassine Sayed, who is an HIV AIDS researcher here at WITS. Then we end off the show by wrapping up our March Mammal Madness Tournament and we found out who won. I myself do not know, but I'm very excited to find out. That's all on the show today. If you'd like to interact with us, it's The Science Inside or Vow FM on Facebook. 
Wow FM also on Twitter, hashtag Science Inside. Our WhatsApp line is 084-078-4912. And I'd really love to hear from you. What do you think about these microplastics? Are you worried? Do you think they have an effect on your body, on your health? Let me know. But before all of that, we will jump into our news. This week's Science Headline. As always, I have our producer, Bridget LaPere, with me here, who has a new story for us. What have you got, Bridget? Hey, Elna, how are you? I'm very good. I'm great. Well, this week, we are talking about the split of Africa. Okay, I did hear about this, and I am a little bit worried. Tell me more. I should tell you more. Okay, this happened in Kenya's Rift Valley when a giant crack opened up in the ground, disturbing farmers and residents. It was up to 15 meters wide and several kilometers long. It caused parts of a highway to the capital, Nairobi, to collapse. This all sounds a little bit bizarre because I did hear these stories and see the pictures and... I don't know. This whole thing about Africa splitting in two sounds a little bit extreme. I've actually myself been in the Rift Valley in Kenya before, and it's quite amazing on an ordinary day. But this sounds very terrible. Yes. So people, including some experts, were saying that this is proof that Africa is splitting into two and that a piece of East Africa is going to break off. Part of the evidence to the story was that there was seismic activity felt at that time. So light earthquakes and, of course, the giant crack in the ground. Okay. So I can get that, that you look at this giant crack and think, okay, Africa is splitting into two. But surely that can't be. That seems a little bit drastic to me. Yeah, even though a lot of big news outlets have run with the story, there's been very large pushback on this idea. Firstly, no reports of earthquakes were officially recorded in Kenya at the time. Also, the tear seems to be in soil and not in the rock. And these experts are saying that this was all because of the heavy rains in the area recently and that that's all it is. Simple, but in my opinion, the best answer. And also, looking at satellite imagery around the area shows that similar erosion or cracks have happened before in this region. Local geologists and previous studies say that this is because of rainwater washing away deep layers of loose volcanic ash deposited by previous volcanic uh, eruptions in the Rift Valley. Okay, you've convinced me. That seems like a far more believable story i'm definitely going to go with these scientists that say it's just rain africa is not splitting into two you guys well actually it is the basic premise of this isn't wrong as you would probably know the upper layers of the earth are made up of so-called tectonic plates africa sits on the nubian and somali plates and these two are actually moving apart at the rate of about one centimeter a year. This means that, yes, a piece of East Africa is likely to break off and the rift is part of that area. Oh my gosh, so it is real, but when is it happening? Are we, like, do we have to evacuate? When exactly is this big split going to happen? 
Maybe in a couple of millions of years or so, but not too soon. <laughs> okay, so this is something that we're, that we're seeing and I guess that's why all of these stories are coming up. But it's actually a very slow moving kind of thing. Yeah, slowly getting there. <laughs> Just think, two different Africas. Thank you so much, Bridget. Um, I have a story for you from the University of Helsinki and the French National Centre for Scientific Research, and it is about vaccines. Which disease is it this time? Polio, Zika, listeriosis, malaria? Come on. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people would love a listeriosis vaccine. But this time, it is not for humans. Don't just think of us humans, Bridget. This vaccine is for plants. What plants can be vaccinated, there is no way. <laughs> yep, it does seem that this will happen in future. We know that traditionally we have protected plants that we want to eat, you know, like grain or cereals by using chemical pesticides. And this helps against pests and diseases that can endanger crops. And with it, of course, it endangers our food security. But this isn't always a great solution. Yes, the chemicals can be spread around and affect other plants of the environment and humans. Exactly, and we know, I'm sure you know of a lot of people who say they only want to eat organic or they have some kind of problem with eating pesticides. So you definitely do need a better sta- a strategy, at least a lot of people seem to think so. And this environmentally friendly plant vaccine is supposed to be it. The way it works is, thankfully, you don't have to now like go and inject the plants or call them for their like yearly flu shot. The way it actually works is that you spray the leaves of plants with double-stranded molecules that then start a process called RNA or ribonucleic acid interference, which is the natural defense mechanism of plants. And this vaccine is designed to match the genes of the pathogen. So that's the bacteria or virus trying to infect it. That sounds great, but does it really affect the plant itself? Thankfully, no, because the genes of the protected plant aren't affected, only the pest. And these RNA molecules are pretty common in nature, so they're not going to build up and hang around and cause anybody any problems. And I know that this all sounds wonderful and so easy, but the process of creating the vaccine was actually very difficult because there are these ways of making double-stranded RNA molecules that get used in medical drug research all the time, but they don't work too well on plants and they are quite pricey. So this group had to create a new way to make these molecules. And they did it using a method that strengthens systems of bacteria, destroying viruses, and then the RNA gets produced inside this, um, these bacteria cells. So does this mean that we will be able to vaccinate our plants as well as lose less food to pests and disease? Scientifically, yes, it does mean that. Practically, no, not yet. Because even though we have the science, the legislation to allow this kind of thing in agriculture isn't in place yet. But it should be, as you can hear. But you also have to learn to apply this on a large scale. The scientists need to figure out just certain ways to keep it stable and just keep the quality of the molecule really, really good and to produce very big amounts. So there is still some work to be done on this. But I think it sounds to me like it could really be the start of a new way of keeping our food security safe.
This story comes through Science Daily and the Plant Biotechnology Journal. That was our news on the science inside. But next up, are the chemicals in your water bottle affecting your health? We find out. This is the Science Inside with Elna. As you heard earlier, Coca-Cola, the company, has been in the news for their plastic bottles that hold their bottled water. They have been found to release microplastics into the water, or rather the water itself has microplastics, that we are ingesting, which is a terribly worrying thing. And it leads me, as a consumer, to ask... What is happening? Why are we not being protected from this? And most importantly, what is it doing to our bodies? This next story from our producer, Bridget Lepeja, does explain. Have a listen. Diminishing scarce natural resources are not only increasing the need to be more savvy in terms of how we use limited non-renewable resources, but they also escalate the demand for disposable packaging, which affects our environment and most importantly, our health and general well-being. Think about all the various packaging that you have come across and used for packing your lunch, storing cold beverages, preparing or cooking food. The range is endless, from glass, bamboo, aluminum, paper or hemp. However, plastic still remains the more viable product of choice because it is cheaper and holds little value. But at what cost? Approximately one and a half million tons of plastic is produced in South Africa annually. And of that, about 35% is used for packaging. Among the many concerns around plastic is the issue of microplastics, which may bring about exposure to harmful chemicals and agents that pose various health risks. Substances such as phthalates and harmful agents such as BPAs and PCBs can be detrimental to one's reproductive system if exposed to. And with regards to this, I spoke to the Director of Sustainability at Plastic SA, Dal Stein. His organization advocates for responsible plastic production and environmental sustainability. He explains what the plastic production process entails and what typical ingredients can be found. You must understand the word plastic or polymer. And plastic consists really of a wide range of synthetic or semi-synthetic organic compounds and that can be molded into solid projects or products. You must also bear in mind plastic comes from a petrochemical. In South Africa, it's made from coal, and when the coal gets heated up, we use the ethylene and propylene gas to make the product. That's been polymerized, comes out like a solid thing. So when you talk about then chemicals, we don't use specific chemicals in the production of plastics, but what is used, which is quite a small, relatively small amount, is things like stabilizers to prolong the life of let's say, the plastics. Then also we use sometimes fillers to actually improve the performance or reduce the cost of the materials. Then they use things like chalk and starch, uh, sometimes fire retardants. But most of these plastics are mostly inert. We also use plasticizers, and that is to make the plastic softer. So there are no nasty chemicals. Most of these chemicals, if it's been seen as a nasty chemical like lead, mercury, are all being phased out. 
CSIR's senior researcher Bettina Gente, who specializes in drinking water treatment, wastewater reuse and water pollution microbiology, responds to reports citing that microplastics were found in Coca-Cola's bottled water. I looked at the report with the microplastics and I must say that it's the first time that I have seen it reported as the pieces of microplastics where they dyed the water sample that had been filtered and then looked under the microscope. And normally what we've done is look at either the endocrine disrupting activity using toxicity assays or bioassays, or we look at specific chemicals that we know that could come from the plastics. We have so many chemicals in our environment. And I think what we're seeing here is that it is found there. It is that we're being exposed to plastics all over the place. And I think that one of the main issues that people have been afraid or concerned about rather than afraid is the phthalates, that these are endocrine disrupting, and which basically means that you have your hormone being affected. And then depending on your life stage, so are you a developing embryo or a small baby or child or teenager or, you know, what stage of your life you're at, it might have different effects at different, at the same concentrations. So we need to know that they're there and there are potential health effects and it's really that it's everywhere. Gente further elaborates on how phthalates found in food or the environment impact one's reproductive system and health. What we're finding is that you can either have it mimicking estrogen, the female hormone, and that can cause various reproductive effects on both men and women. So they haven't been able to exactly link the different types of chemicals to specific exposures and health effects that are being seen. But the trends in the world, and especially where we have got a lot of plastic use, is that you have your male fertility is decreasing, so the sperm counts are going down. You have a, a lot of abnormalities in the reproductive system of babies that are born, where you have undescended testes or even a malformed genital, and you find also that even the number of males is decreasing. In other cases, you're finding that cancers are increasing in the number. You have fertility problems. You have endometriosis. People are even talking about attention deficit disorders that are possibly linked to some of the environmental pollutants. And there's no ways that we're going to be able to say specifically that this chemical causes that because we're exposed to so many and in a mixture and through so many different ways that we are not going to be able to have a controlled experiment where we say, okay, this person is not going to be exposed to any of those chemicals and let's see how they develop. Ganther adds that while science and technology always strives to better the lives of humans by coming up with less abrasive and non-toxic innovations, sometimes the best way to moving forward is simply slowing down and recouping for both innovators and consumers. I think what's happened previously is that when we've had an alternative chemical that's produced, typically they find out that that alternative also has health problems. 
Um, I know that they've done that with the bisphenol A, and that's one of the chemicals that people were always very concerned about being in plastic bottles, and that you now have all these signs on the water bottles that we use, you know, for sports or for carrying around so that we are recycling. They have those labels that says BPA-free, that's the bisphenol A, and you have now that a substitute compounds are now starting to be found to have similar health problems. The plastic environment that we're living in, everything is is made of plastic these days, and I think that we should try and move away from that. We have so much plastic that is wasted, that's not reused, that is causing concern to our environment and to our health, to people's health, animals' health, to environmental health, and general ecological effects that are being seen. So if we could try and get away from the high amounts of plastic that we're using only to transport things or to package them to make them look nicer for the shops and then we just get home, take, get rid of the plastic and throw it in the dustbin. I think a lot of it is just uh, the way our society or our world has changed. With this in mind, Plastic SA's Dal Stain speaks about what the plastic industry is doing to curb the scourge and unnecessary overuse of plastic and what the regulations and guidelines are with regards to manufacturing of plastic. You must bear in mind that, especially in your packaging, it's quite heavily regulated globally. According to the packaging and food grade stuff, it had to be FDA approved also have to be according to what we call EFSA, the European Food and Safety Association. And most of your plastic industries are voluntarily phasing out any heavy metals and any potential hazardous materials. And that's why you also find that in the cosmetic industry, microbeads are being phased out. Currently, there is no regulation, like if I take South Africa, there's no regulation that says that is what you have to do. But according to the World Health Organization, the EFSA, the FDA, you have to adhere to the rules. And that is how the plastic industry do their job. Well, I think most industries do have specific orders, especially if you're in the food industry. And also the retailers often go to the companies that are making their products and have orders done to also ensure the safety. That's a common rule by the packaging industry and the food industry. Though science is uncertain what the health implications of continued microplastic consumption is, but what is clear is that there is a need for less plastic use and production, and more importantly, a need to revisit regulatory laws and perhaps an implementation of new policies around plastic production worldwide. You've been listening to a story by our producer, Bridget Lepere, about water bottles made out of plastic and the effect of microplastics on our bodies, our health, and all the regulations around that. You can catch that also on our podcast if you missed it on vits.journalism.coza. Stay with us on The Science Inside. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events.
Every week on this show, we take a few minutes for our feature Unscience, which has some ridiculous research, ridiculous science done by scientists that you just won't believe that they spend time on this and that they do these things to supposedly solve problems. Today, it's all about cockroaches and worms. And the information comes from Science News, Huffington Post, Smithsonian Magazine and Science News Music by Media fire and sound dog unusual unlikely unscience again i'm here with our producer bridget lapere just to chat to me about unscience because i'm pretty sure bridget that both you and myself have had a moment when we've been traumatized by a cockroach and feel like its whole species should just be eliminated crunch over Yep. Like that. Die, cockroach. (laughs) I don't know how we would kill all cockroaches um, on Earth, even if we wanted to. But I do know that scientists have discovered a worm, yes, a worm, that produces toxins that can kill cockroaches. I'm sure some of you are very happy about this. It's called the bootlace worm or Linnaeus longissimum. And it has a spooky, stretchy body that can stretch up to 55 meters. That's longer than an Olympic pool, Bridget. It covers itself in mucus that smells like iron or sewage. And when it is irritated, it releases this poisonous mucus to protect itself from predators. That's ironic. A worm is our best chance at winning against pests. I think most of the time we see them on the same level. Well, no pun intended there. But now how does this poison affect us as humans? Right, it's no point in having something or trying to use something that'll kill the cockroach and then you end up dying. Yeah. That would be a terrible, a terrible research study. <laughs> um, so first of all, we need to understand that the worm's mucus kills pests like roaches by affecting their sodium channels, which paralyzes them. And tests have been done to see how it would affect mammals. And the effect was nowhere near as strong as when it was tested on pests. So it was concluded that this mucus, which is called nermatide alpha-1, isn't poisonous to humans. So you don't have to worry. All right. Then I guess I can officially say that I'm a fan of worms. Well, just the bootlace worms, that is. Another thing is how are scientists getting this mucus from the worms? Yeah, this is where it gets a little bit funny because scientists have a tough time keeping these worms in the lab to start off with because they're very thin, slippery creatures and it would be pretty easy for them to slide right out without being noticed. So your first thing is you need to keep these worms without them running away and scaring all your fellow scientists. But to answer your question, the bootless worm produces mucus when it's provoked, as I've already mentioned, when it's irritated, when it's just having a really terrible day. And so scientists actually have to irritate it on purpose and then they have to collect this released mucus. And that does not sound like a job I want at all. That sounds like having a younger sibling who constantly finds the pleasure in irritating you but wow i'm i'm sure these worms don't like people now no i would hate scientists if i were this worm i'm still very thankful if they can still 
kill all the roaches. Yeah, I, a lot of the time, I know you and me, we just want to kill cockroaches and I am sometimes so bad at it. I really am not a great person when it comes to cockroaches. Spiders, I'm okay, but cockroaches, oh no, really not necessary. But actually there are some really good things about cockroaches because without cockroaches some species of animals would have less to eat and their numbers would drop because cockroaches you know form a big part of their diet and get this roaches are something we as humans need because of their poop okay wait it's bad enough that cockroaches are generally thought of as dirty. Now their poop is important to me. How? <laughs> what are you even saying? So roaches feed on decaying plant matter, which traps a lot of nitrogen. Then they release this nitrogen into the soil through, yes, their poo. And they fertilize the soil and help us grow our food, Bridget. So do you really still want to kill them with mucus scary worms? Yes, with all the life within me. <laughs> they may help my food grow, but I still don't want them in my house. So I'm still all about the bootylicious worms. I mean the bootlace worm. <laughs> and the bootlace worms are far cooler than cockroaches. Yeah, I think if I had to pick... In a fight between a bootless worm and a cockroach, I would probably pick the bootless worm. Just because I can imagine a bootless worm in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Um, although, it does sound a bit crazy. Because it's 55 meters long. Bridget, that's a very long worm. And beyond killing uh, uh, cockroaches, bootless worms have some pretty cool abilities. Like, they can split themselves into two so they can clone themselves basically and create two new worms they also have temporary sex organs and can produce either sperm or eggs depending on what's necessary and they can regenerate a part of their body that has been cut off or bitten by a predator so it's a pretty versatile uh, versatile worm not just about um, killing cockroaches these studies are conducted pretty recently, I do have to say. So they're promising in a sense if you want to be using mucus to keep your homes pest-free. But it's not going to be rolled out anytime soon. There you go. Worms that create mucus that kill cockroaches. It definitely is unusual and likely and science. Stay with us. Next up, we are talking to the scientists behind science. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Here on the show, we like to spend some time putting a scientist in the spotlight, not just because of their science, but to talk to them a little bit about who they are as a person, why they are doing what they're doing. And we, I always walk away from these interviews having learned something new, not just about science, but about the people behind all of these solutions that end up influencing a lot of lives. Tonight, we're talking to Professor Yassine Sayed, and he is an associate producer, sorry, 
<laughs> an associate professor here at the University of Witwatersrand. Professor Syed is the principal investigator in the HIV AIDS Research Trust within the Protein Structure Function Unit at the School of Molecular and Cell Biology. His main area of research is a very important one. It includes protein biochemistry, biological thermodynamics and HIV proteins and has and he has published numerous journal articles in this field. He has led his research group to international acclaim. And he works specifically within research in antiretroviral treatment in sub-Saharan Africa. Thank you so much, Professor, for joining us. Hi, good evening. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start just with some definitions so that we're all on the same same page. One of your main areas of specialization is in protein biochemistry. Can you please explain to our listeners what exactly this is and why it's so important to drug development for viruses like HIV? Okay, thank you very much for the question. Uh, so protein biochemistry uh, is is a very um, specialized field of biochemistry in which uh, researchers look specifically at uh, protein molecules. So protein molecules are probably the most abundant type of biological molecule in the body. They are responsible for performing a wide variety of functions and um, they are definitely important for maintaining the health status uh, of any, any organism whether that's a virus, a bacterium, a mammal, um, even something as, you know, as, uh, as uh, simple as, let's say, a, a, a fungus. So uh, proteins in that regard uh, uh, play a central role. Uh, when proteins do not function properly, either because of misfolding or unfolding, uh, they obviously result in a number of diseases. And with regard to um, uh, viral uh, p- uh, proteins, these proteins can also be used to actually infect a host, such as a human, for example, and cause certain diseases to occur in that human being. And so, therefore, protein biochemistry is important uh, to, to health as well as to the pharmaceutical industry who are obviously interested in looking at uh, um, treating these diseases so as to maintain a, a, um, a reasonable health status. Hmm. You've been looking at antiretroviral treatment specifically in sub-Saharan Africa, but it does differ, this kind of treatment, or at least the approach, it does differ in different countries and areas. How does that get decided? Why is it so different and not a one-size-fits-all solution? Yes. So um, it's actually quite interesting that when, when we talk about HIV and uh, when people are just discussing it um, as, you know, as lay people, we tend to think that uh, HIV is only of one type or one kind. But this virus is actually uh, quite varied in the sense that there are several different uh, types of HIV. So, for example we get HIV-1 and HIV-2. 
HIV-1 is the predominant form of HIV in the world. Very few people, in fact, only some animals are actually infected with uh, HIV-2. But for the most part, uh, the, the HIV-1 is the major subtype, or sorry, is the major type of HIV. Within the subtype uh, 1 category, we get different types of HIV, which are uh, designated uh, types A, B, C, D, etc. And there are nine of those types. Now, in Europe and North America, um, particularly the, let's say, the sort of Western civilized sort of kind of countries, the type of HIV that they have is actually significantly different to the HIV we have in Africa, even in other countries such as China, Brazil, and India. In North America and Europe, the predominant subtype there is termed the subtype B protease, or or subtype B virus, rather. But within the South African or uh, African context, we have a subtype C virus. Now, because most pharmaceutical companies uh, have interests in North America, Europe, etc. When the drugs, the antiretrovirals were designed, they were designed originally to target a subtype B virus. And therefore, that drug design was not really optimal or optimized for a different subtype. And we have seen that uh, within subtypes, there can be quite a remarkable variation in terms of how the viruses respond to the drugs uh, when those drugs are not designed to a specific subtype. So all the work currently, sorry, all the work currently has actually been done to target a subtype B virus and not actually a subtype C virus. That is somewhat surprising uh, and shocking to me, considering that South Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa has been for many years quite a focus of at least HIV as a virus. One would think that yes. the research would have been more suited towards the specific type prevalent here. Correct, yeah. So, um, if, if one even looks at uh, HIV statistics, you'll find that uh, perhaps since the the beginning of the the epidemic, uh, there have been about 35 million deaths that have actually occurred. Mm. And and that's obviously, you know, as early as the sort of the early 1980s. However, if if one only looks at the South African statistics, the statistics are actually quite scary and alarming. For example, as of uh, the statistics uh, shown for 2016, show that uh, South Africa alone had about 270,000 new infections in 2016, with about 110,000 AIDS-related deaths. Currently in South Africa, we have about just over 7 million people living with HIV. And there's no doubt that over the past few years, our government has realized the urgency with regard to access to antiretroviral treatment. And we have one of the largest uh, ARV programs in the world. Uh, currently around 56% of um, HIV infected people are accessing ARV treatment. Uh, 
uh, and in fact, of that number, more than about, I think they say about 95% are actually uh, HIV pregnant women. So we, uh, pharmaceutical companies, governments, etc., have realized the urgency of bringing antiretrovirals into South Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa. However, the actual effects or how effective those drugs would be within our subtype C context is not really fully understood. And the reason I say this is because we are beginning to see um, viruses that are emerging as a result of drug-induced pressure. In other words, the drugs are not as effective in our C subtype as they are in the subtype B uh, um, virus. And our viruses are now beginning to emerge with new mutations and are therefore evading um, drug treatment or drug pressure. So there's a very um, strong drive to try and understand how we can rationally design drugs to treat a specific type of, type of HIV that we actually have, for example, in South Africa. It sounds to me, from what you're saying, like that even though the visibility and the knowledge and even the destigmatization of HIV and AIDS in our country and internationally has gone up. A lot more people are accessing ARVs, are getting tested, but that's not the same thing as necessarily the science catching up and being where it should be. Absolutely, you correct. Uh, for example, um, uh, two of my uh, postgraduate students, um, they have just completed the uh, PhD research project and uh, the theses are currently under examination. But we've also, or they have actually prepared manuscripts that we've submitted to journals for, uh, for consideration for publication. In, in our research, we've actually shown that some of the drugs that are currently being prescribed and used within a South African context are not necessarily the appropriate or the best drugs to be used. And, for example, one of the drugs that is currently being hailed as um, a drug that can um, assist a, a patient who has already developed uh, drug resistance mutations this protease inhibitor is called Darunavir. Mm. Now, we've actually shown with some of the work that we've done that, in fact, Darunavir is not actually a drug of first choice when patients actually present, uh, you know, with HIV-AIDS-related symptoms. And, in fact, that that drug should not be prescribed to the patients simply oh, because wow. uh, in our, in our uh, uh, cell culture studies, uh, in vitro studies, we've actually shown that the, the, the viruses are still able to be virally fit and are not suppressed when used with this drug. Hmm. That is quite scary. And it's good to hear that scientists like your team are trying to address these things and just um, do what they can and not wait 
until uh, viruses mutate further or anything like that. It sounds like your team is doing amazing work, uh, Professor, in, in that sense. But I would like to ask you just one or two questions that gets a little bit closer to the motivations behind being a scientist, specifically in this field. What, what moved you into venturing into HIV research? Um, so my, my interest was actually always in protein biochemistry because I am a, a biochemist and my, my discipline is protein biochemistry. I, I actually um, started off with, with a, a very different protein or enzyme which is actually found in human liver. And this enzyme is called glutathione transferase. It's actually a detoxification enzyme. But at the time, um, just after I had completed my PhD and I was working as a research officer at uh, our university, at the, uh, an opportunity arose for me to actually go to uh, Johns Hopkins University in the U.S. to work with some scientists over there in order to start uh, understanding more about the HIV protease because a group over there led by Professor Ernesto Freire had actually shown for the first time that the type of uh, HIV that we have in Europe and or North America and the type of HIV from uh, uh, Africa were actually exhibiting different characteristics. So uh, we actually then, uh, that's myself and my then uh, supervisor, Professor Heine Der, uh, I, I then uh, initiated a trip to go to Johns Hopkins, and that's where I learned all about the HIV protease uh, in terms of its purification and how to actually characterize it with regard to drug-binding studies. So once I spent about uh, six weeks there, uh, I was obviously hooked with uh, the type of research because it was very relevant to South Africa and also Africa as a whole. And I obviously felt a, a very strong uh, social responsibility to try and put or translate my research from just being purely academic and intellectual in the lab and to hopefully try and make a difference you know, in a broader community. And uh, when I returned, that's when I initiated the HIV research uh, within uh, the Faculty of Science in the School of Molecular and Cell Biology. So mm -hmm. I had a very strong uh, um, social, uh, you know, uh, responsibility in terms of uh, my research in terms of science. Mm. On that note of turning what is in the lab into something practical, we love asking everybody who is on this interview on the show one last question, and that is if you could explain one thing to the ordinary people listening about your field of research that you wish people knew that perhaps they didn't know, what would that thing be? Um, I think with regard to, to HIV, um, my, my, I think my message is simple. Um, although we have a, a very uh, large arsenal of um, biochemical and biophysical techniques 
to understand uh, HIV or understand the enzyme protease, uh, that in itself, that that in itself, is actually not going to, in my view, enable us to actually get a cure for this disease, mm. because the protease is extremely complicated. Uh, there are several other enzymes, two enzymes in particular, that also contribute towards the problem of drug resistance. So, for us to look at a chemical molecule such as a drug in order to bring about a cure is going to be very difficult, if not impossible. However, these drugs will actually allow uh, treatment as, as um, treatment for a chronic disease would, uh, um, for example, uh, um, take place. But if I were to give somebody one piece of advice, I would say, if you don't have HIV, don't get it. And if you do have it, be responsible by not passing it on to somebody else because the actual cure for this disease, I believe, is in our social behavior and not in turning to drug molecules to actually try and cure it. Hmm. That is the one thing that Professor Yassin Sayed would love for you to know about his research and his field of research within HIV AIDS. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Professor. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure chatting to you. That was the scientist behind the science here on the Science Inside. Do keep listening. This is the Science Inside with Elna. It is still the Science Inside with myself, Elna Schutz, and I have Anthony Teixeira from the Sports Hub team on the phone today. Unfortunately, he can't be in studio. Hi, Anthony. Good evening, Alma. How are you? I am very excited to talk to you. Oh, I'm so excited. March, the month is over, and so is March Mammal Madness. And if you've been listening to the Science Inside, we play this game every year. It's sort of like a fantasy football league, but for nerds, it's all about these fantasy fights between animals. Sort of when you were a kid and you said, hey, who would win in a fight between a shark and a blue whale? Obviously, it's the blue whale. But you get my point. It's kind of like that, but for adults, and we've been playing it all month, and this is our last time talking to Anthony and the Sports Hub team to see who won. Are you excited? I'm so nervous right now. <laughs> so the way it's been working is three people from each um, from each team. But I do have to say, unfortunately, not all of the Science Inside people have been able to hand in their brackets. So it is a little oh, bit of, of an unfair so situation. Default. You do not win by default. That is not how it works. Somebody okay. has to sit on the bench. Have you not listened? Have you not seen okay. sports before, I'm, Anthony? I've never seen sports. Never. It's not my life or anything. <laughs> um, so... The, what we are going to do is take the top two scores of each team for the team scores and then obviously see which person in total has won. I do have the results here that the producer has brought me, but I have not seen them. So I'm about okay. to pick them up and see them for the first time. You can hear crinkling, the exciting crinkling sound of paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the winner... Should I start at the bottom? 
because that's quite quite depressing. The person who has lost with the least points, 41 points, maybe me. Is it you? <laughs> it's not like a leader science show for a living or anything. So that's very depressing. Oh. I'm going to have to like like look at that again because that, that depresses me deeply. Um, then the next two spots, counting from the bottom, um, is Mike, Pedro and Ahmed. So both Sports Hub members. And then in second place with... 58 points and let's just clarify the winner only has one more point in second place is anthony teixeira oh no (laughs) and then in very first place is lebel with 59 points and she is on which team, Anthony? Just it's clarify. okay because if you look at the team scores, I believe that sports won teams. Okay, um, I have not done the math, and uh, even though this no, is a science show, technically we got second and third. And this if I was true. only one point ahead, I'm considering that sports got a little bit more than forty-two points. Yeah. That would be Michael Pedro. That's true. That is true. Therefore, we win, so I'll take solace in that. So, so to end it all off, it seems like we can continue our friendly friendly feud over the years because this time we won the individual, you guys win the team. We can just go on fighting for years, march after march. Can I tell you a little secret? I don't mind that I came second. What I care about is that I beat the rest of the sports team. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good evening, Anthony. What's up, Kaji? <laughs> okay. I would feel to be the worst sports science player on the sports team. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it could be worse. You could be Mark Pedro. He's had a really <laughs> bad day. He's had a really bad day. Uh, so for the listeners out there, if you have been following, you probably know by now that the pygmy hippo is the animal that won March Mammal Madness oh this God. year. I'm very surprised because there were dinosaurs involved here. The thing is, <laughs> I sort of called it in the first week. I was like, what about the hippo? Dude, you wouldn't believe it. I put it through right through to the final to get it to win. And then I realized it's this little midget hippo. And I was like, this thing is no way it's making. I wrote down hippo and then I canceled it. I felt like crying when I saw that it won. Yeah. So oh, you, no. you got very... I was honestly going with, uh, with the Tasmanian devil that Mike Pedro chose. I really thought he had a very good choice there. But yeah. apparently not because he's doing almost as badly as I am. So whether, whether your thing is science or sports, Monday night on VAFM is exactly where you want to be. This has been the science inside. And next up, we do hand it over to the Sports Hub team. I just quickly needed to find my list of thank yous, as always, to all of our guests. Today on the show, it's Bettina Gente, Dow Stain, and Professor Yassine Sayed. Our team behind the scenes in production is Bridget LePere, Harmony Malefi, Lebohang Madisha, the Queen of March Mammal Madness 2018, officially, Glory Mabuza, and Take by Kutlana Sahame, as always, who has been our very gracious March 
March Mammal Madness referee and hasn't been playing with us. Podcasts are on vids.journalism.coza forward slash science. You can find us on social media, The Science Inside on Facebook and VAFM on Twitter. My name is Elna Schutz. The Science Inside is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. We'll see you again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on Power FM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.